hope it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In the Lord I will put my trust. In the Lord whose word I praise, I will not fear what man can do to me. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I will not be greatly moved. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Uh, In case we need to use 1 John 1.9, we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to worship you through the study of your word, the fellowship that we have because of your word and with Jesus Christ, who is the center of our lives because of his work on the cross. Now, Father, as we study your word under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we pray that we can understand these things, see how they apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we can, tonight we continue our study of one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of the New Testament, I believe. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we hit this the last time, and I know that you have not been spending a vast amount of your time reflecting upon your notes from two weeks ago. So I think we need to take a little time to review, because this is so important, and there are so many times in life when we are talking with somebody about the gospel, or we are communicating something to them about the Christian life, and this passage comes up, and someone wants to connect works to faith. And I really think that this is the underlying Issue in the entire lordship free grace controversy in understanding the gospel. And to articulate the question most precisely, I think we need to ask is a person who tr- does a person who trusts Christ as their Savior necessarily produce works or fruit in their life as a result of that? And see, some of you are nodding your head yes, some of you are nodding your head no. And that's the question that James is asking. Is it necessary? Or, to put it another way, can a, can a person hear the gospel? And by that, let me clarify, we've studied this in our study of John. We've studied it in Galatians. We've studied it in James. Let me clarify the gospel. The gospel is simply that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That's the gospel. Do you believe that? Now, believe, pistuo in the Greek, means to trust, to entrust yourself to something, to accept something to be true, and, and therein lies a 
particular rub in the Christian life because some people will say, but do you have a do you have a head belief, brother, or do you have a heart belief? And the Bible does not see a distinction between the head and the heart. And by that silly little phrase, what people mean is seem to be trying to draw a distinction between is having simply an intellectual apprehension of the fact that Jesus came as a historical personage, that the Bible says that he died on the cross for my sins, but they do not believe that he died on the cross for my sins. You see, there is a world of difference between saying, I believe the Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And what we saw in our study of John is that faith is a a form of mental perception. It is primarily intellectual. You do not believe emotions. With your emotions, you believe with the cognitive part of the soul with the mind. So that when you say, I believe X, X equals a statement that is a proposition. Now, a proposition is a statement that has, to get technical, has a noun or a subject and a verb or a complement that is falsifiable or verifiable. That's a definition of a proposition. A question is not a proposition. A, an imperative, a command is not a proposition. A proposition is a declarative sentence that can be falsified or verified. So we are believing something to be true, that Christ died as a substitute for my sin. See, if you change any factor in that proposition, you change its structure. You can say, I believe Christ died as a substitute for sins, and you haven't accepted it for yourself. You can say you believe that the Bible teaches that, but that's not the same as saying, I believe Christ died for me. Because I can believe that the Koran teaches a number of things, but that doesn't mean I believe that what the Koran teaches. I can say, I can believe what a social... I says, I believe that socialism holds to certain factors as true, but that doesn't mean I believe those factors are true. I have to believe this proposition here is true. Belief means to trust, rely on, to entrust yourself to, to accept something as true. Now, the bottom line issue here is we have to make sure that what we are believing is the accurate proposition, that what we are believing is the salvific message of Scripture and not something else. For example, it's very common today for people to come along and explain the gospel and say you have to invite Jesus into your life. Or you have to invite Jesus into your heart. And they get this from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Hold your place in James. And let's just turn over to Revelation chapter 3. 
look very briefly at this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which reads, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, come into him and, he, and will dine with him and he with me. Now, Jesus is speaking here. This is the uh, last letter in the letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. It's to the church of Laodicea. A couple of things are important to understand. First of all, people will, or interpreters will jump to the verse 15 and verse 16 and say, well, this is an apostate church, therefore it's unbelievers. The church, when we read in verse 14, and to the angel, and that is the Greek word angelos, which literally means messenger, and we have transliterated the word, that means we have just basically brought the word over into English as angel. So when the translators translated this, they saw angelos and they just took the knee-jerk reaction and translated it angel. And it should be messenger, i.e. the pastor teacher of the church of Laodicea. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. That you, I word that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, there was a hot springs about 15 miles north of Laodicea. That's where they got their hot water, and they built the Romans built these, this pipeline for bringing the hot springs mineral waters down to Laodicea. And in nine months out of the year, when it was rather cool, by the time the water got to them, it was lukewarm and not really usable. On the other hand, down Colossae was just a few miles south of there, and they had some very fresh water wells that were very cold. They piped that in, and it would also tend to warm up a little bit in the process during the summer months. Now, the point of this, you will normally hear this interpreted, the cold and hot... Cold equals believers or unregenerate people, unbelievers. Hot is those that are excited about the Scripture. I don't take that interpretation. What we have here is a metaphor, and metaphors can be somewhat difficult to deal with. Hot water is something that is very usable. You make coffee and tea with it. You can do all kinds of things with hot water. You can take a bath. You have Your muscles are sore at the end of the day. You can cra- crawl into hot springs and your muscles will relax, and you can relax, and you'll feel a lot better the next day. After a hard day of working, you come home, and you take a cold shower, and it just kind of jazzes you up, and you feel better. You get up in the morning. You take Now, some of you, I know, when I say anything like taking a cold shower, you immediately uh, recoil in disgust from the thought. But some people do. Cold water tastes good. It quenches your thirst on a hot day. Cold water is usable. When this metaphor is used, both cold water and hot water are usable, but lukewarm water is useless. What do you use lukewarm water for anyway? It's useless. That's the point of the metaphor. Jesus says, I w- why would he say, I wish you were cold, if cold meant unbelievers? That has always bothered me. Why would Jesus want somebody to be an unbeliever? In fact, that seems to contradict passages that say he wants, the Lord desires everyone to come to a knowledge of salvation. So I take it that the metaphor of cold or hot refers to the fact that they 
the people in Laodicea, a little isagogical background, they wanted some hot water and they wanted some cold water because you could use it. But many times during the year, by the time the water got to them, it was lukewarm and not usable. And so the Lord says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, another thing that just occurred to me as I looked at this, because you are lukewarm, to be lukewarm, you had to first be cold or hot. So this is talking about believers who are no longer in a usable state as they once were. Now, the other reason I know that this is talking about believers is look down in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And the tone of this letter is disciplinary. Those whom I love. Now, the word for love here is not agape. It is the Greek word phileo. Looks like this. In the Greek, P-H-I-L-E-O. And when phileo is used, when the subject of the verb is God, the object is always believers. Agape reflects, especially in passages like Romans 5.8, John 3.16, the impersonal love of God for believer and unbeliever alike. But phileo always expresses God's personal love for believers. God never has phileo love for unbelievers. So right now from verse 19 we see that the context shows that that uh, the Lord is talking to the church as believers. He is reproving them in divine discipline so that when you come to verse 20 it is not a verse directed to unbelievers but it must therefore be a verse directed to believers. And, and we have also seen in other studies, for example, what we're doing in John chapter 6, that all the way back into the Old Testament, when, when God and the angels came to Abraham's tent and they sat down and they dined with him, up through the, uh, the banquet that was served at the base of Mount Sinai after the, after the law was given, all the way through, you have these images of meals where one participant is God and the other is man, and it is a picture of our fellowship with God, of the results of reconciliation. So when we read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, this is a reproving knock. If they are out of fellowship, Christ is, not, Christ is no longer a part of the church fellowship. They have gone into apostasy and liberalism, and Christ is no longer at the center point of the teaching and the worship of the church. So he stands at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he will meet, he with me. The result is fellowship. So this pictures rebound. This pictures grace recovery. This pictures 1 John 1 9, uh, re- the idea of Repenting, changing your mind about sin, turning from sin, turning back to God, and that is done through confession, admission of sin. So this verse has nothing to do with salvation, yet you hear people say, if you want to be saved, invite Jesus into your heart, invite Jesus into your life. But that's not what we were studying up here. That is not the proposition. As we have seen in John 20, 31, these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. So one of the issues is that we have to clarify in this 
is believing the right proposition. Now, as I said in the introduction tonight, the problem is that there are many people who think that if you reach point X in your life where you say, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I've clarified the object of the belief proposition now. I believe in Jesus as stated above, that that necessitates works. The problem with that is, how are you going to define works? Is it possible, this is where the rubber meets the road, is it possible for an unbeliever to come along and at point X he trusts Christ as Savior? Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, I believe it. And then... He never hears any more doctrine, doesn't know anything else, and he goes back to living his life just as he did before he was saved, uh, under complete control of the sin nature, living in rampant carnality for the rest of his life, producing zero fruit. Is that possible? And one of the central passages at the focus of this whole argument is James chapter 2. Because, as we have seen, it is normally interpreted as being a reference to justification, salvation. God is perfect, and His plan is perfect, and there are three stages to God's plan. Phase one is saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is being saved from the power of sin. And phase three is being saved from the presence of sin. At phase one... When the Greek uses the word sozo, which means to save, to deliver, and in some context to heal, if the context is salvation from the penalty of sin, then that is justification salvation, phase one. But the word saved is also used for sanctification. Phase two, we're saved from the power of sin, that is the process of the Christian life, learning doctrine so that we can apply it in our lives to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. Now, That is how James is using it here. But there appears to be a contradiction. We must review the contradiction. Paul seems to say that works are completely excluded from the salvation proposition. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not on the basis of works which we have done, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But James says in verse 14 of chapter 2, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the implication is no. A faith without works cannot save him. So there appears to be a contradiction, but it simply turns on our interpretation of the word saved or sozo. Now, in order to understand all this, last time we looked at the context and we saw saw that James had been addressing a sinful attitude among his hearers, that these hearers are seen as believers, and that they are guilty of failing to handle the people test of rejection. This has been exemplified by the way they handle the persecution from the wealthy. And as a result of their failure to confess their sins, back this is alluded to back in verse 21, uh, they have accumulated a lot of biblical and doctrinal knowledge as academic knowledge, 
but they delude themselves and there's no application. They have a lot of gnosis doctrine, but no epinosis doctrine. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that knowledge, gnosis, puffs up, but epinosis makes full. So this is just a context here. He's talking to believers. They have been out of line. They haven't been uh, confessing their sins, getting back in fellowship to take in God's word. So in verse 21, he said, Therefore, and he uses a attendant circumstance participle there to show the prerequisite to the mandate of receiving the word. He says, Put aside all filthiness, all the remains of wickedness, by means of humility, that is grace orientation, receive the word implanted. Now, they are already believers as of verse 18, and so now they are commanded to take in the word which is able to save your souls. And we saw that this phrase is an idiom used in Scripture and means to save the life. And so there is a contrast that we have seen in James between saving the life, that is advancing to spiritual maturity where you experience the abundant life in phase two and temporal death which is the result of living in carnality. So, verse 22 emphasizes the result of that, that we are to become doers, that is, appliers of the word, and not merely hearers who are self-delusional. Now, that brings us to, let me see, in terms of review, we've looked at James 1, 18 and 1, 19, and now down to verse 25, But one who looks intently, and this is a word that implies diligent examination, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. And there's a very important phrase to understand. In the Greek, it looks like this. It's a combination of poieo, it is the adjective form, poietes, start over here, P-O-I-E-T-E-S, poietes, plus the adjective or the genitive of ergos, ergo. So it looks like this in English, P-O-I-E-T-E-S-E-R-G-O-U. Now, this is the word from the noun poieo, meaning to do, which is the subject of this section, application of doctrine. This is the word, the Greek, for works. So we are to do works. It's production. So James 25 shows the connection between hearing, accurate hearing leads to application, poieo, and then Down here, starting in James 2.14, faith is going to lead to works or production. So we see the connection in this phrase in James 1.25, and that opens the whole thing up for us so we can understand the thrust of James 2.14. There we read, What profit is it, or what value is it, what applicational value is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, if a man says that he has no faith, that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, we saw last time, too, that we have to understand faith here. The first time it is used, it is minus the article. 
That means it is anarthrous. That's the technical grammatical term for a noun without the article. The next time it is used, it has the article. This is called an anaphoric use of the article. Another technical word here, anaphoric. And it means that in Greek, when that article is used the second time, that it is referring back to the previous noun. So James is saying, what value, what applicational value is it, my brethren? If a man claims to have doctrine. Now this is the other point we made about faith, is that there are three ways to take it. The first way is faith in terms of justifying faith. Second way is the faith rest drill, the active use of faith, and then the passive use of faith, which is what is believed or doctrine. Now, verse one is ruled, option one is ruled out by the context. We're not talking about justification faith. Option two is also ruled out, remember, because James is talking about application. The faith rest drill is application. Faith rest drill is mixing faith with the promises of God. Faith rest drill is taking a doctrine or a promise of God, mixing it with faith, and when you mix faith with the promise of God, that's application. When you're in a tight situation and you claim the promise, I will mount up with... Uh, they that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And you're applying that promise to your situation. That's application. That is doing the Word of God. Doing the Word of God is not signing up to, signing up to teach a Sunday school class. It's not going door to door passing out tracts. It's not doing evangelism at the airport. It's not collaring the person on the airplane next to you because you've got on a four-hour flight, and so you can make sure he understands the four spiritual laws 50 different ways. That's not doing the Word of God. Now, evangelism certainly can be a way of application, but the way these passages are normally taught, doing is some kind of external overt activity. But as we have seen... The application of doctrine is seen under the uh, ten stress busters or ten problem-solving devices. When you sin and you are out of fellowship and you know that you're in carnality and you're going to get disciplined and you need to recover, you apply the word through 1 John 1, 9 and confessing sins. Second thing, when you are trying to figure a situation out in life, then you use doctrinal orientation. You figure out what is the doctrine here that applies to this life, so you align your thinking with doctrine. Grace orientation, you're dealing with a, a situation, and you're going to deal with somebody out of generosity and grace, or you're, you're feeling guilty about some sin in your life, but you realize God, paid through Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for that sin and, and com, completion. It was paid in full. So you are orienting your thinking to grace and you're not going to react in guilt. That's application. All of these are application. It's how you think and how you respond in applying doctrine during times of testing. So the faith rest drill then can't be the solution here because it's already application. So that would be a redundancy and it wouldn't work. It is a work. 
It is an application. So if a man says he has the faith rest drill, but he has no application, can that faith rest drill save him? See, that just doesn't make sense. So it leaves us with only the third option, what is believed, that is doctrine. And that fits the context because James is saying that if you are a hearer of the word, that is, if you are simply accumulating academic knowledge and you are not applying it, then that has no value for your spiritual growth. Academic knowledge isn't enough. It has to be epinosis knowledge. It has to be converted and metabolize as epinosis knowledge, and this is done, we have seen through our grace learning spiral diagram. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. We exercise volition in order to understand it. It becomes gnosis in the outer lobe of the soul in the noose. Thereafter, we understand it. We exercise volition again to believe it. And then, under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, it is converted into the innermost part of the thinking compartment of our soul, the cardia, as epinosis doctrine. This becomes usable doctrine, and we still have to exercise volition again in the test situation to apply it. And that's where we're talking about here. James is saying it's not just enough to have gnosis doctrine, you have to have epinosis doctrine, and you have to apply it. That is the kind of faith that saves you from uh, temporal death and from carnality to advance in spiritual maturity. Then he gave an illustration in verses 15 and 16, applying it in the direction of impersonal love towards someone who is destitute. They've gone through some tragedy. They've lost their personal possessions, their home, their clothing. They've gone through a tornado. They've gone through a hurricane. They've gone through a depression, an economic depression, and so they've lost their job, whatever it may be. They have a legitimate need, and so there is the need to use impersonal love and to help them deal with their situation. Concluded Concludes in verse 17, reiterating the point, even so, faith, that is, doctrine, if it has no application, is dead, being by itself. Now, what does he mean by dead faith? First of all, when you see that someone, something is dead, you know that first it had to be alive. So the dead faith does not mean a non-existent faith. It means a non-functioning faith and implies that where there is now death, there once was life. Secondly, we understand from the contextual emphasis that James is talking about developing a capacity for life that comes only from maturity in the spiritual life. Third, we saw that there are seven kinds of death in the Bible. There's spiritual death, physical death, sexual death, positional death, carnal death, operational death, the second death. Now, which of these is this when it says faith that has no works is dead? That would be operational death. It has no value for the spiritual life. It's any kind of spiritual, any kind of work that is apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit and is just operating on Gnosis doctrine. That brings us down to verse 18, which is our crucial passage. It's important to set all this up, and I'll do it again next week because we're not going to finish, but this is such a debated passage, we have to go over it and over it again because I want you to 
learn it so well that the next time you're engaged in a conversation with someone, that even if you can't refute them, you will at least know that they're wrong and you won't fall into their trap. Verse 18 and 19 introduces the words of an objector. Now, the first thing we need to realize is that this is an objector. This is clear from the literary formula that's set up. There are certain words that are used, there are certain phrases that are used that are typically used in Greek literature in a debate situation where the person who is arguing for a position will then present his opponent's case and he will set up that opponent by saying, but someone might say, and then you will hear the words of the opposition. And then he will conclude that, once he is done quoting his opponent, he will then say, but you, O foolish man, something to that effect, addressing the opponent as a fool who hasn't understood the issue. Now, this type of stylistic device is used in two passages in Scripture that we looked at last time, Romans 9, 19 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 36. And it is clear from this, as well as throughout Greek literature, that this is a literary formula known as a diatribe, and it always follows the same pattern. And there is no example anywhere in Greek literature where this literary form does not introduce the words of an objector or an antagonist. Someone who is offering an opposing viewpoint. Now the reason I am belaboring that point is that when you look at these words and you read the typical commentary they interpret the words that this someone may well say as saying something that basically affirms James. They will scratch their head and say, although these words almost always introduce the words of an opponent, after we read the words, they are obviously introduced by James as a supporting argument. And then, secondly... The second thing we need to understand from looking at this passage is that the show me phraseology here in the context of a diatribe is sarcasm. Sarcasm. This is seen in a couple of pieces of ancient Greek literature. Theophilus, in a work called Ad Atalicus, that is, to Atalicus, he says in 1-2, But even if you should say, Show me your God, I too might say to you, who Show me your man, and I also will show you my God. This is a sarcastic response indicating something that is not fulfillable. It's a demand that can't be fulfilled. Epictetus says the same thing in his discourses. Who in the world are you? The bull of the herd or the queen of the beehive? Show me the symbols of your rulership. See, it's not possible to show those symbols. So this phraseology indicates, or is telling them, show me something that can't be shown. 
That's the assumption of the objector. So this is a sarcastic comment. Now, if the objector is saying something that James is not saying, and he is being sarcastic to boot, we have to keep that in mind. Because when you look at the text, it reads, You have faith. Okay, this is the words of the objector. He says, you have faith. So let's chart it up there this way. You have faith, you being James. You have faith, and I, the objector, have works. Now, the interesting thing is that a lot of commentaries stop the objector's comments at that point. They don't understand the literary background here. You have faith and I have works. But he goes on, he says, Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is going to get a little sticky, so you're going to have to concentrate a little bit. It just about turned my brain inside out today, and uh, it'll probably turn yours inside out, but pay attention. What he is saying here is, Show me your faith without the works. In other words, that's not possible for you to take faith and show it to me without works. And I will show you my faith by my works. So now he's going to say, I've got faith and my works give evidence of my faith. Now, you look at me with a little question mark. Well, isn't that kind of what James is saying? James' argument is, let's back up a minute and make it real simple. James' argument is that there's a necessary connection between faith and works. But he's not talking about saving faith. He's talking about doctrine. If you have epinosis doctrine, it's gonna, it needs to be applied. That's the connection. So he's arguing for a necessary connection between faith and works. If you interpret the passage as it's written in your English version, it seems like the objector is really saying the same thing James is saying. That... I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my doctrine by my application. Now, it's possible to nuance that as a, not really meaning that, but there's another solution. And it's a little sticky solution, and we might as well get into the subject of textual criticism. Now, we're going to have to get into this in a lot more detail in a couple of passages coming up in John, so just consider this a prep course for what's coming up in John 7 with the woman caught in adultery. Let me review what is meant by the subject textual criticism. This is the science of analyzing various texts when we have thousands of texts of the Greek New Testament, but there are points of disagreement. Now, there are perhaps a thousand or more different points of disagreement, but most of them have very little relevance or significance. It's the one manuscript the guy forgot to put in the article, or he added an article that shouldn't have been there, or he misspelled a word from a genitive to an accusative. Different copyist errors like that, and there are various lists. They do a great job of analyzing all the different ways in which we can make mistakes when we're copying something. And there's a vast number of them, and I'm not going to bore you with all of those details this evening. I just want to hit the the crux of this. In textual criticism, 
means that we have a passage here where there are two different readings in the textual history of this document. One reading uses the Greek word uh, chorus here, which means without. That is the reading that is used in your King James, your New American Standard Version, and in your uh, NIV and most other modern uh, translations. But there is another reading, and that uses the Greek word, the Greek preposition ek, ek, and this is not found in any English translations whatsoever. Now let's do a little history of a review of our history of how we got the Bible. When in eighteen, in about fifteen oh nine to fifteen fifteen. A Greek scholar by the name of Erasmus published the first Greek New Testament. That Greek New Testament was based on around, I think it may have been eight or nine Greek manuscripts. The oldest of which was the 12th century. That's the 1100s. The oldest was the 12th century. That Greek New Testament went through several editions, but by 1611, that was known as the TR, the Textus Receptus in the Latin, also called the Received Text. And that became the basis for the translation into English of the King James Version. Now, we're just talking about the New Testament here. We're not talking about the Old Testament. You have the TR. Now, the TR, remember, is only based on about eight or nine Greek manuscripts, and none of them are very old. The oldest is 12th century. And none of these manuscripts are in really great shape. That was the TR. Then, in the 19th century, a number of new manuscripts were discovered. For example, one which goes by the symbol of the Hebrew letter Aleph, it's called Codex Sinaiticus because it was discovered at, at uh, St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount, uh, on Mount Sinai by a Prussian aristocrat scholar who knew a vast number of languages by the name of Constantine von Tischendorf. Von Tischendorf. And Tischendorf happened to be up there in 1844 searching for ancient Greek manuscripts and he was sleeping there, spending the night there and they left a a bucket there with a basket with a lot of wadded up papyrus in it to use to light the fire. And so he would take that and he would, as he lit it, and the flames leaped up and he saw the letters on there being a scholar of all the ancient dead languages. He immediately read it and realized he had a copy of the Bible and he put it out. And he went to the monks and said, is there any more of this? And they said, well, we've already already burned a couple of basketfuls of that, but we have some more left. And it was an ancient copy of the scriptures, but... There, there was more. Now, he came back in 1853 to talk to the head of the monastery there to see if there were any more other ancient manuscripts. And he had put this manuscript that he had found earlier together, and he had about 60 or 70% of the Bible. Some of it was gone. And the guy said, oh, I have a complete set. And he reached, went back into his, his library, and he pulls out a beautifully bound uh, manuscript that had about 95% of the Bible. 
and that's called Codex Sinaiticus, and it dates from about the uh, 4th century, I believe. Then, about this same time, you had another guy, this is called Codex B, which is also known as Vaticanus, and this guy's name was Samuel Tregellus. And about 1846-47, he's at the Vatican, finally had permission to go look at this codex that was there that had been kept under wraps for a while. And there, he has a guard on each side, and he can only look at each page for a few minutes, and if he's, they think he's looking at it too long, they immediately reach down and turn the page. Well, he discovered, he realized that he had another discovery there for also from about the 3rd or 4th century, and that this was a very ancient manuscript, but it was going to be another 20 years or so before anybody could look at it again. And finally, Tischendorf got permission to look at it. And the thing about Tischendorf is he had almost a photographic memory. And he went in there and he looked at, at um, Vaticanus, and he just about memorized it and went out every night and he wrote down what he memorized. They'd give him 15 minutes on each page, and he'd memorize it. Go home, write it down that night, and he published it later that year, and it was so close that it forced the Vatican to finally publish a copy in about 1887 to 1890 it came out. Then, another manuscript that's just called uh, A, Codex A, from the 5th century. This is another one that's very important. It dates to the 5th century. And then there was Codex C, which is also called Ephraim, the interesting thing about this is it dates from the 5th century also. These are very old manuscripts. But it was erased at one point in order to... Uh, Ephraim was a, about a 12th century scholar who decided that he needed some paper to write his sermons on, so he erased this old copy of the Bible and wrote his sermons on it. Well, Tischendorf discovered a chemical process that he could put on the papyrus to recover the uh, original writing. And so that was recovered. Now, these four manuscripts all represent a text type. Now, what happens in textual criticism is they try to collect manuscripts by... because they all have certain characteristics, certain errors in common, certain other features in common. And so this is called the Alexandrian text type, which is from Alexandria, North Egypt, and that part of the, uh, of the Mediterranean world. There are several other te- text types, Syrian text type, Caesarean, and then the other one is the Byzantine from the area of Turkey and Greece and that area. Now, The TR is pretty close, but it has a lot of differences to the Byzantine text type. There's still a lot of differences. Now, the majority of manuscripts are are Byzantine. So we'll write majority up here. Now, when these four, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, A and C, were discovered, about that same time you had two English scholars very famous evangelicals by the name of Westcott and Hort. And they were textual critics, and they developed a pretty intricate theory of how to figure out what the original reading was. 
by putting all your manuscripts together and comparing them. And I won't go into all the details because we'd all be asleep in about ten seconds. But just to give you a nutshell idea of their basic theory was the oldest is the best. Okay? That's a super simplification. But that's basically it in a nutshell is the oldest is the best. And the Byzantine was viewed as being a later text type so that it was almost, the scholarly world almost dismissed the Byzantine text type completely. Boom, boom. We're not going to listen to that. Well, starting in the 1840s, I mean 1940s, 1950s, a number of scholars realized that, that even though the Alexandrian documents here go back to about the 4th century, maybe even the 3rd century, the Byzantine text, even though the manuscripts were older, they reflected a 2nd to 3rd century reading. So the plot thickens. Because now you can't just say older is better. And now the majority of readings are reflected in the Byzantine text type versus four or five uncials plus, that's, they're called uncials because they're in all capital letters, plus a number of papyrus documents that have been found which represent the Alexandrian text type. Now this is a major battle in textual criticism. Being a textual critic is a very difficult educational task. It involves a lot. There's only about four or five men who've ever graduated from Dallas Seminary that I would consider to really know something about textual criticism, and they're just about split down the middle. Uh, half of, now, Westcott Hort has been generally debunked, so what most people will say is they have an eclectic view, but the eclectic view is basically if three of these, do, these manuscripts agree versus the majority, then you always go with these three. But at least three of these all go to X, were copies of the same mother document. Now you see why it gets complicated and it just fries your brain. Well, the majority of documents, the Byzantine text type universally says that the reading in James 2 here is the preposition X. It's only the Alexandrian text type that has the reading chorus. Now, that's still not a definitive solution. And this is tough. This is the Word of God. We're not just playing games here. So you have to come back and you have to look at this and say, okay, what makes the most sense inside the text? Well, obviously, this is why I belabored the point. Obviously, it's sarcasm, number one. Number two, it's an objector. So whatever he's saying is not what James is saying. The without would make him agree with James, but that goes against the literary lineup. So on the basis of the internal evidence, it seems like Eck is the superior reading. It makes more sense. In this case, the objector is saying to James that it is not possible to show your doctrine or show what you believe by appealing to application any more then a person can show his doctrine without the application. It's what is called as a reductio absurdum argument. It would read like this. You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith from your works, which you can't do, and I will show you from my works my faith, which I can't do. Because James is arguing that there is a connection 
between doctrine and application. And if you want to have life, you're going to have application. And his objector is saying, that's absurd. You don't need to apply it. All you need to do is learn it. Put together 50 or 20 different doctrinal notebooks, know all the terminology, know how to talk the talk. That's what counts. James is saying you've got to apply it. That's what counts. So, the objector is saying that it's absurd to say that there is a close connection between doctrine and application. For the sake of argument, he's saying, let's say that you have faith and I have, doct- I have works. You can no more start with your doctrine, that is, with what you believe, and show, show to me the doctrine you believe by what you do, then I can start with what I do and demonstrate from that what I believe. Now, let me go over that again. What the objector is saying is that it's impossible to show a connection. He's saying, James, you can't start with your doctrine and show me what you do as a result of it any more than I can start with my application, my lifestyle, and show you what my creed is, what my doctrine is. And James responds then in verse 20 by saying, but you, but are you willing to recognize? See, verse 18 and 19 is the whole objection. And then he, I skipped verse 19, excuse me. Verse 19 he continues, he says, take a case. This is the objector speaking in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, you have a belief. You have a doctrinal position. You're going to say God is one and you do well. And that leads you one way in your life. But the demons also believe the same thing. They have the same doctrine. But they tremble. See, James, there's no connection. You say there's an inherent connection between doctrine and application. But I'm telling you that you both have the same doctrine, but two different applications. So you can't make a point to me and tell me I have to go out and apply this stuff. Because there's no necessary connection between application and doctrine. That's the whole point. So you need to mark in your Bibles, draw brackets around 18 and 19, because 19 is quoted by a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But that is not a doctrinal point. Verse 19 is the words of an objector who is offering an oppositional view to James. Once again, just to make sure you get it. There's an objector, an oppositional viewpoint offered in verse 18. But someone may well say, that's how James introduces his words, you have faith and I have works. Okay, James, here's the situation. You claim to have doctrine, and I'm claiming to have a certain lifestyle. You show me your doctrine from works, from your works, and I'll show you my, from my works, my doctrine. And his point is, it's sarcasm. You can't do it. You can't show these things. His point is, there's no connection. And the illustration is, you believe that God is one, and that affects you one way, and the demons believe it, and they shudder, they tremble, that affects them a different way. You see, James, faith and doctrine do not have an inherent connection. I mean, doctrine and application do not have an inherent connection. James responds then in verse 20. He is offering his rebuttal to the objector. He says, 
Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith, and here we have an uh, anaphoric use of the article here, taking us back to the same concept, you foolish fellow, that doctrine without works is useless. And the word for useless is a Greek word, arge. A-R-G-E. And arge means idle. In Matthew 20, verse 3, it's talking to about idle workers. What are idle workers? Idle workers are workers who don't produce anything. They don't accomplish anything. So arge means to be idle, to be not producing, to not accomplish something. Therefore, when we look at this, we would translate it, Are you willing to admit, you foolish fellow, that doctrine without application accomplishes nothing. The point is that you have to have application for there to be any growth or production in the spiritual life. So we'll close there, verse 20, and then James is going to illustrate this, starting with Abraham and then with Rahab the prostitute in verse 25. I think it's interesting his choice of illustrative material here because he is going to show, and here we're going to have to look at how he, James uses the word justification. He is going to show the role that application plays in justification. And we'll see that next Wednesday night. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to come to grips with the difficult passage here before us and to understand the importance of application. That coming to Bible class is not an end in itself, but it is the beginning point. It is where we learn doctrine that we must apply in order to advance spiritually, in order to face the tests of adversity so that we can respond through the stress busters, so that we can grow spiritually, advance to spiritual maturity, and glorify you in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that you will help us to understand the things that we have learned tonight that they may help us in our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.